Scripture this morning will be from Acts 17, 30 and 31. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance for this to all by raising him from the dead. Good morning and welcome to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. We're very thankful for a beautiful day, the opportunity to meet together, to worship God in spirit and in truth. What a difference a year makes. This time last year, we were experiencing the aftermath of a tornado. And so we're grateful that time has progressed and that we have been blessed with a, really a new building. And things are going well, and so we're grateful for that. We're going to be looking in just a moment at Acts chapter 17. I do want to remind all of our young people about the devotional tonight, immediately following our services at the home of Shelley and Kenton. And we will look forward to that this evening. All right, before we move on, let me also mention the VBS that begins one week from tomorrow night. And we want to encourage all of our friends and neighbors to come and to be a part of that. And we want to do everything that we can to make it a very, very great week. In our lesson today, I want us to look at Acts chapter 17. I want us to think for just a moment about the theme, a city in need of the light of God. In Acts chapter 17, we read about the missionary endeavors of the Apostle Paul. We think about his numerous travels from city to city. In chapter 17, we are introduced to his work in the city of Thessalonica, and then on into the city of Berea. And down in verse 16, we find Paul making his way to the great city of Athens. And while in that city, he had the opportunity to make known the light of Almighty God. And so I want us to think for a moment or two about what occurred in that great city of Paul's day. Because Athens was viewed as quite a city in the days of the Apostle Paul. And interestingly, when he arrives in the city of Athens, his observation is not one based on materialism or physical structures, for that matter. When we read the account, beginning in verse 16, nothing is said about the great architecture that was in the city of Athens. Nothing is said about the artistry of Athens. But the Bible does say something about the religious nature of that city. And the text tells us that Paul's spirit was stirred within him because he realized these people needed to hear about the one true God. And so Paul took the opportunity, the occasion, to declare unto these people, these enlightened people, about Jehovah God. So having said that, the first thing I want to call your attention to is the confusion of the people. And really what you have in the city of Athens are misguided people. They were religious in many respects, but they were misguided, not unlike our day and time. As a matter of fact, we can look around in our world today and we see many people who are 
religious. The problem is they are misguided, religiously speaking. There was a cross-culture of religious views prevalent in the city of Athens. Think about how you and I, we live in a society today in which there is a cross-culture, there is a diversity of beliefs. And many of those beliefs are embraced by sincere and genuine people. But they are misguided nonetheless. Let me just identify for you at least three classes of people that were prevalent in the city of Athens by by way of religion. Number one, Paul identifies those who were idolaters. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that when he arrived in Athens, his spirit was stirred within him because the city was given over to to idolatry or to idols. And so the first class of people that you and I are introduced to are idolaters. That is, individuals who were polytheistic in their beliefs. As a matter of fact, Paul even finds an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And so here are all of these idolatrous people worshiping and serving any number of pagan gods or pagan deities. Now, as I said a moment ago, when Paul bases his assessment of the city, or rather when Paul assesses the city of Athens, it's really not a materialistic assessment. It's not something that is, that is based on, on physical structures, but rather it is that which is spiritual in nature. So first of all, he talks about the idolaters. And then we read of those Israelites and Gentile worshipers. Note, if you would, verse 17. The Bible says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So here is Paul taking the opportunity to go into the synagogue and to to teach, to preach, to enlighten people about the nature of God and about His Son, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of Almighty God. And in Acts chapter 17, we read where the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was a perplexing thing to those in the city of Athens. There is a third class of people that Paul encountered in Athens. And this would be those that would be deemed the intellectuals. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 18. The Bible says that he came in contact with certain Epicurean philosophers. Now, the Epicureans, they believed that pleasure was the chief aim of life. Now, there are a lot of people in our, in our world today. If you were to ask them, what's, what is the, the purpose of life? What's the reason that What's the reason that you are on planet Earth? They would tell you to maximize pleasure, to minimize pain, to enjoy life. Well, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life. There's nothing wrong with with the pleasures of life. But if that becomes the chief aim of life to the exclusion of worshiping and serving God, well, we have a problem. Well, here are these These Epicureans, that is, followers of Epicurus, 
And that was the, that was the doctrine that they had embraced. That is, that pleasure is the chief aim of life. And then also, we read of those Stoic philosophers. And the Stoics, they were followers of Zeno. And they believed that everything was governed by fate. They would, de they would deny the immortality of the soul. Now, what you have to understand is that when you look at the city of Athens, you're talking about a hub for intellectualism. Think of some of the great thinkers that, that can be traced back to, to Athens. We think about Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. Paul identifies the Epicureans and the Stoics. Well, note if you would what is said in verse 21. It said, all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Obviously, they were interested in learning. They were interested in growing intellectually. Nothing wrong with that. But you see, here were individuals that, that from a cultural standpoint, they were very diverse. And... There was a cross-culture of religious thinking, of religious beliefs. And so they were misguided. What you have is Paul now trying to, to provide some clarification to these misguided souls. And so we talk about the confusion of the people and then the clarification by Paul. And what Paul is going to do is present the message of Almighty God to these people. And so with that in mind, note if you would, dropping down to verse 22, because the first thing that Paul is going to do is present unto these people the one true living God. Bear in mind, these people were polytheistic. And Paul points that out as he makes known or makes reference to this altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now Luke tells us in verse 22 that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. He was on Mars Hill. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Well, these people were religious, as we've said just a moment ago. There was a cross-culture of beliefs. Verse 23, for as I passed by, or as I was passing through, and Considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. There are two things that Paul is going to do in his sermon on Mars Hill. First of all, he is going to present unto these people, the, that is, the Creator. He's going to present God the Creator to these people. They needed to know that there, that there was a God and that God was the one who framed the heavens and the earth. As a matter of fact, Paul would say that God was the one who created them. So with that in mind, look at what he says. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with the hands of men as though he needs anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men 
to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. So here Paul basically identifies their creator. Think about how many people in our society today, when it comes to their creator, to their origin, they are confused. We have a large segment of our society today that are extremely confused when it comes to their origin. They don't believe in God. How many people have embraced the theory of evolution? And it is but a theory. And yet they would believe it as if it is what? Divine truth. Think about the textbooks that, that our young people are using in public schools. Many of those textbooks advocate what? Not God as the creator, but evolution. Well, when Paul stood before these people on Mars Hill, one of the things that he did was introduce them to the one true living God. He began by telling them about their creator. If you and I are going to have the right concept of God, we have to understand our origin. We have to understand that God is our creator. Back in Genesis chapter 1, it was God who said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The Bible says that he formed man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. Genesis 2 at verse 7. So he introduces them to God the creator. And then secondly, God the caretaker. He tells these people in Athens that God is a benevolent being. As a matter of fact, Paul said, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He is the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things. If you want to know the source of every blessing in life, it's God. James said every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is the one that has bestowed on us the many blessings or benefits of life. And so when Paul presents under these people, the one true living God, he begins by identifying their creator. They needed to understand that there was a God, that there is a God in heaven who made them. That's what people need to understand today. There is a God in heaven who made you and who made me. As the psalmist said, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And then God is our caretaker. He is a benevolent God. God is the one that has lavished upon us all of these blessings in life, whether those blessings be material, physical, or spiritual in nature. God is the dispenser of those gifts. So, the presentation of the one true living God. And then, what he's going to do in the second place is talk about preparation to meet the one true living God. Note, if you would, what Paul said, beginning in verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature, that is the Godhead, is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. When Paul entered the city of Athens, what did he find? He found all of these idols, these pagan deities. 
Those deities could have been, could have been made by what? Well, by stone. They could have been made by silver. They could have been shaped by the hands of mankind. And Paul is saying the God that I'm talking about was not devised by the hands of a man. But rather we are talking about an incorporeal being, that is a spirit being. We're talking about the Godhead. You are the offspring of Almighty God. And so in verse 30, he writes or he says, Luke writes and Paul says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, that would seem rather odd, wouldn't it? Here is Paul talking about the one true living God, God the creator, God the caretaker, and now he's talking about repentance. Why would these people, why would they need to repent? Why would they need to turn from their ways, to change, to amend their ways? Well, Paul's going to tell them why. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 31. Because he is appointed a day in which he will judge the world. First of all, Paul says there's a coming judgment. We talk about this summons to the judgment. Did you know that the judgment is a theme that runs throughout both the Old and New Testaments? That we read about the judgment of Almighty God? That is the last day? That day when the dead will be resurrected and all people will stand before the Lord? Paul said here that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The second thing he talks about is the standard that will be used at the judgment. What is that standard? That standard is the word of God. Here's what Jesus said. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 at verse 2, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. What is truth? You remember Pontius Pilate asked the question, what is truth? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now, Paul said, God is going to judge the world in righteousness. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 172, that all of God's commandments are righteousness. One day, this book is going to be opened. And Paul was saying to those people that were living in the city of Athens that one day, God is going to summon you to the very judgment seat and you're going to give an account of the deeds that have been done in your mortal body. You're going to stand before the Lord. You're going to be judged in righteousness. In Revelation chapter 20, John pictures that great and final day when all people will stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. He said, I saw the dead, the small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. What books was John talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those who lived under the old law, they would be judged according to that law. Those of us who live under the new law, that is the law of Christ, we will be judged accordingly. He said the books were opened. Another book was opened, he said, which is the book of life. And then he said the dead 
shall be judged out of the things written in the books. So we're going to be judged on the basis of truth. And then there is a third thing that the Apostle Paul sets forth. First of all, he emphasizes this summons to the judgment. Then secondly, the standard to be used at the judgment. And then the third thing is the Savior who will judge. Note what he says. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You and I are going to stand before what Paul identifies as the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at verse 10. Paul would write in Romans chapter 14, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In John chapter 5 verse 27, Jesus said that the Father had given him authority to execute the judgment. Jesus is the one that will ultimately judge you. He'll judge me. We're going to be judged on the basis of what we do in this life. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, We must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're going to stand before the Lord. What Paul wanted these people to know is there's a judgment coming. Now, note if you would a second thing. We talk about this, this divine message that these people had the opportunity to hear. I want you to now think with me for just a moment about the masses because once they heard the gospel, they had to make a decision. Before we look at, at the results of Paul's endeavors in Athens, let me just say this. At the onset of our study, I said that here was a city in need of the light of God. If ever a city needed the light of God, it was Athens. But equally so, you can go back in history and read the other cities that the Apostle Paul had the opportunity to visit. And you'll see where he preached the gospel and established congregations. I would say that those cities, they too needed the light of Almighty God. When Paul stood before Agrippa, as Luke records in Acts chapter 26, he tells Agrippa that God had appointed him to preach the gospel. And he said one of the things that God had appointed him to do was to turn people from darkness to light. Jesus said, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The fact of the matter is, the world is groping in spiritual darkness. John said the whole world lies under the hand of the wicked one, lies under the sway of the wicked one. In other words, the world is in darkness. What the world needs is what? The light of Almighty God. Look at, our, look at our society today. When Paul went into the, into the city of Athens, think about all of the things that he could have said about that great metropolitan city. You want to talk about an elite city, a city renowned for so many things. 
The only thing Paul was concerned about when he went to the city of Athens was the spiritual, the spirituality of those people. He was concerned about whether or not they were going to go to heaven or hell. That's really the bottom line. Now, look at our society as we speak. There are a lot of things that have occurred in our society, technologically speaking, that we are grateful for. We're grateful for better modes of transportation. I mean, it's a, it's a great thing to be able to hop on a jet and fly from here to Los Angeles in three hours. The same amount of time it would take you to drive in a car from here to Nashville, Tennessee. An amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing to, to be able to pick up the telephone and talk to somebody literally around the globe. It's amazing that you can sit down at your computer and you can literally talk to somebody on the other side of the globe instantly by way of messaging. There are so many things that we can be grateful for, advancements in, in medicine, in science. We look at all of the advancements that we enjoy in this world. And while all of those advancements are great and good and have benefited us in so many ways, what our country needs today, what our society needs today, what people need today are not necessarily better modes of transportation, better medicine, better science, but what people need in our world today is the gospel of Christ. That's what our society needs. Our society, our pluralistic society, a society that has embraced the idea that any and every God is acceptable, any and every avenue of salvation is well and good. What our society needs today is to know that there is a one true living God, and He is a God that you must serve if you want to go to heaven. That's what people need to hear. That's the only thing that's going to make a difference in our society today. So we think about Paul preaching the gospel to these people. Now note, if you would, the masses. Here's how they responded to the gospel of Christ. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. In other words, they derided the gospel of Christ. They mocked at it. There are people today, when you present the gospel of Christ, when you talk about Christianity, what do they do? They turn their nose up at it. Well, that's just a bunch of fairy tales. That's just a bunch of, of fiction. Well, you have to decide. You can weigh the evidence and you can draw your conclusions and here were people, they heard the gospel. They heard about the one true living God. They heard about the resurrected Christ and here's what they did. They mocked at what they heard. Second class of people. Paul said that some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. That is, they deferred. They delayed doing anything about the gospel of Christ. Not unlike people today. There are many people in our world today, they're waiting for that more convenient time to obey the gospel. They want to hear more. They want to think on it a little bit longer. Let me tell you, one of the greatest tools of the devil is procrastination. Just don't do anything. What you need to do is think this thing through more fully. What you need to do is just reflect upon everything. Well, these people heard the gospel. They knew about God. They knew about Christianity, and yet rather than, rather than making a decision, they deferred. Third class of people. Note if you would, verse 33, So Paul departed from among them, however, some men joined him and believed. What happens here? 
some, some people decided to obey the gospel, that is to follow the gospel of Christ. Now, if you want to just sum up the reactions of people, you've got it right here in these verses. Some people are going to deride the gospel of Christ. Some people are going to defer in obeying the gospel of Christ. And some people are going to decide to obey the gospel of Christ. The choice is ours. The choice, the choice was before these people. They had to decide what were they going to do with Christ. That same question begs to be answered today. What are you going to do with Christ? Are you going to obey? Are you going to live for him? Are you going to own him and crown him as the Lord of your life? Or will you say, not today, I'll wait? What would you need to do to become a child of God? Well, first of all, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins, John 8, verse 24. Then you would need to repent of every sin, Luke 13, 3. Just as Paul said to the Athenians, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to what? To repent, to change your life. And then to confess the name of Jesus before others, to acknowledge that he is the Son of God, and then be immersed with him in a watery grave of baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life, to enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, Acts 22, verse 16. If you're here today and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, we want to encourage you to come. We would have the opportunity to pray with you and for you, and we believe that God will abundantly pardon every sin. Would you come as we stand and sing?